Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Tales podcast, the show that takes you on a journey through the worlds of science fiction and fantasy. In this episode, we will continue our tale, The Caravan. Join us as we unravel the mystery of the physician from Constantinople. I was born in Constantinople. My father was a dragoman of the Ottoman port and carried on, besides, a tolerably lucrative trade in essences and silk goods. He gave me a good education, since he partly superintended it himself and partly had me instructed by one of our priests. At first, he intended that I should one day take charge of his business, but since I displayed greater capacity than he expected, with the advice of his friends, he resolved that I should study medicine. For a physician, if he only knows more than a common quack, can make his fortune in Constantinople. Many Frenchmen were in the habit of coming to our house, and one of them prevailed upon my father to let me go to the city of Paris, in his fatherland, where one could learn the profession gratuitously, and with the best advantages. He himself would take me with him, at his own expense, when he returned. My father, who in his youth had also been a traveller, consented, and the Frenchman told me to hold myself in readiness in three months. I was beside myself with delight to see foreign lands, and could not wait for the moment in which we should embark. At last, the stranger had finished his business and was ready to start. On the evening preceding our voyage, my father conducted me into his sleeping apartment. There, I saw fine garments and weapons lying on the table, but what most attracted my eye was a large pile of gold, for I had never before seen so much together. My father embraced me and said, See, my son, I have provided thee with garments for thy journey. These weapons are thine. They are those which thy grandfather hung upon me when I went forth into foreign lands. I know thou canst wield them, but use them not unless thou art attacked. Then, however, lay on with right good will. My wealth is not great. See, I have divided it into three parts. One is thine, one shall be for my support, and spare money in case of necessity. The third shall be sacred and untouched by me. It may serve thee in the hour of need. Thus spoke my old father, while tears hung in his eyes, perhaps from a presentiment, for I have never seen him since. Our voyage was favourable. We soon reached the land of the Franks, and six days' journey brought us to the large city, Paris. Here my French friend hired me a room and advised me to be prudent in spending my money, which amounted to 2,000 thalers. In this city, I lived three years and learned all that a well-educated physician should know. I would be speaking falsely, however, if I said that I was very happy, for the customs of the people pleased me not. Moreover, I had but few good friends among them, but these were young men of nobility. The longing after my native land at length became irresistible. During the whole time, I had heard nothing from my father, and I therefore seized a favourable opportunity to return home. There was going an embassy from France to the Supreme Port. I agreed to join the train of the ambassador as surgeon, and soon arrived once more at Istanbul. My father's dwelling, however, I found closed, and the neighbours, astonished at seeing me, said that my father had been dead for two months. The priest, who had instructed me in youth, brought me the key. 
alone and forsaken, I entered the desolate house. I found all as my father had left it, but the gold which he promised to leave to me was missing. I inquired of the priest respecting it, and he bowed and said, Your father died like a holy man, for he left his gold to the church. This was incomprehensible to me. Nevertheless, what could I do? I had no proofs against the priest, and could only congratulate myself that he had not also looked upon the house and wares of my father in the light of a legacy. This was the first misfortune that met me, but after this came one upon another. My reputation as a physician would not extend itself, because I was ashamed to play the quack. Above all, I missed the recommendation of my father, who had introduced me to the richest and most respectable families. But now they thought no more of the poor Zalukos. Moreover, the wares of my father found no sale, for his customers had been scattered at his death, and new ones came only after a long time. One day, as I was reflecting sorrowfully upon my situation, it occurred to me that in France I had often seen countrymen of mine who travelled through the land and exposed their goods at the marketplaces of the cities. I recollected that people gladly purchased of them because they came from foreign lands and that by such a trade one could make a hundredfold. My resolution was forthwith taken. I sold my paternal dwelling gave a portion of the money obtained thereby to a tried friend to preserve for me, and with the remainder, purchased such articles as were rare in France, shawls, silken goods, ointments, and oils. For these I hired a place upon a vessel, and thus began my second voyage to France. It appeared as if fortune became favourable to me, the moment I had the Straits of the Dardanelles upon my back. Our voyage was short and prosperous. I travelled through the cities of France, large and small, and found, in all, ready purchases for my goods. My friend in Istanbul continually sent me fresh supplies, and I became richer from day to day. At last, when I had husbanded so well, that I believe myself able to venture on some more extensive undertaking, I went with my wares into Italy. I must, however, mention something that brought me in no little money. I called my profession also to my assistance. As soon as I arrived in a city, I announced by means of bills that a Grecian physician was there who had already cured many, and truly, my balsam and my medicines had brought me in many a session. Thus, at last, I reached the city of Florence in Italy. I proposed to myself to remain longer than usual in this place, partly because it pleased me so well, partly, moreover, that I might recover from the fatigues of my journey. I hired myself a shop in the quarter of the city called St. Croce, and in a tavern not far therefrom, took a couple of fine rooms, which led out upon a balcony. Immediately I had my bills carried around, which announced me as a physician and merchant. I had no sooner opened my shop than buyers streamed in upon me, and although I asked a tolerably high price, still I sold more than others because I was attentive and friendly to my customers. Well satisfied, I had spent four days in Florence, when one evening, after I had shut my shop and according to custom was examining my stock of ointment boxes, I found, in one of the smaller ones, a letter which I did not remember to have put in. I opened it and found therein an invitation to repair that night, 
punctually at 12, to the bridge called the Ponte Vecchio. For some time I reflected upon this as to who it could be that had thus invited me. As, however, I knew not a soul in Florence, I thought, as had often happened already, that one wished to lead me privately to some sick person. Accordingly, I resolved to go. Nevertheless, as a precautionary measure, I put on the sabre which my father had given me. As it was fast approaching midnight, I set out upon my way and soon arrived at the Ponte Vecchio. I found the bridge forsaken and desolate and resolved to wait until it should appear who had addressed me. It was a cold night. The moon shone clear as I looked down upon the waters of the Arno, which sparkled in her light. On the church of the city, the twelfth hour was sounding. When I looked up, and before me stood a tall man, entirely covered with a red cloak, a corner of which he held before his face. At this sudden apparition, I was at first somewhat startled, but I soon recovered myself and said, If you have summoned me hither, tell me, what is your pleasure? The red mantle turned and solemnly ejaculated, Follow. My mind was nevertheless somewhat uneasy at the idea of going alone with this unknown. I stood still and said, Not so, dear sir, you will first tell me whither. Moreover, you may show me your face a little, that I may see whether you have good intentions towards me. The stranger, however, appeared not to be concerned thereat. If thou wishes it not, Zalukos, then remain, answered he, moving away. At this my anger burned. Think you, I cried, that I will suffer a man to play the fool with me and wait here this cold night for nothing. In three bounds I reached him, crying still louder, I seized him by the cloak, laying the other hand upon my sabre, but the mantle remained in my hand, and the unknown vanished around the nearest corner. My anger gradually cooled. I still had the cloak, and this should furnish the key to this strange adventure. I put it on and moved towards home. Before I had taken a hundred steps, somebody passed very near and whispered in the French tongue, Observe Count, tonight we can do nothing. Before I could look around, this somebody had passed, and I saw only a shadow hovering near the houses. That this exclamation was addressed to the mantle, and not to me, I plainly perceived. Nevertheless, this threw no light upon the matter. Next morning, I considered what was best to be done. At first, I thought of having proclamation made respecting the cloak, that I had found it. But in that case, the unknown could send for it by a third person, and I would have no explanation of the matter. While thus meditating, I took a nearer view of the garment. It was of heavy Genoese velvet, of dark red colour, bordered with fur from astrachan and richly embroidered with gold. The gorgeousness of the cloak suggested to me a plan, which I resolved to put in execution. I carried it to my shop and offered it for sale, taking care, however, to set so high a price upon it that I would be certain to find no purchaser. My object in this was to fix my eye keenly upon everyone who should come to inquire after it, for the figure of the unknown, which, after the loss of the mantle, had been exposed to me distinctly, though transiently, I could recognise out of thousands. Many merchants came after the cloak, the extraordinary beauty of which drew all eyes upon it, but none bore the slightest resemblance to the unknown. None would give for it the high price of 200 zechins, 
it was surprising to me that when I asked one and another whether there was a similar mantle in Florence, all answered in the negative and protested that they had never seen such costly and elegant workmanship. It was just becoming evening when at last there came a young man who had often been in there and had also that very day bid high for the mantle. He threw upon the table a bag of sessions exclaiming, by heaven, Zalukos, I must have your mantle, should I be made a beggar by it? Immediately, he began to count out his gold pieces. I was in a great dilemma. I had exposed the mantle, in order thereby to get a sight of my unknown friend, and now came a young simpleton to give the unheard-of price. Nevertheless, what remained for me? I complied, for on the other hand, the reflection consoled me, that my night adventure would be so well rewarded. The young man put on the cloak and departed. He turned, however, upon the threshold, while he loosened a paper which was attached to the collar and threw it towards me, saying, Here's a Lucos, hang something, that does not properly belong to my purchase. Indifferently, I received the note, but lo, these were the contents. This night, at the hour thou knowest, bring the mantle to the Ponte Vecchio. Four hundred zecchins await thee. I stood as one thunderstruck. Thus had I trifled with fortune and entirely missed my aim. Nevertheless, I reflected not long. Catching up the two hundred zechins, I bounded to the side of the young man and said, Take your zechins again, my good friend, and leave me the cloak. I cannot possibly part with it. At first, he treated the thing as a jest, but when he saw it was earnest, he fell in a passion at my presumption and called me a fool. And thus, at last, we came to blows. I was fortunate enough to seize the mantle in the scuffle and was already making off with it when the young man called the police to his assistance and had both of us carried before a court of justice. The magistrate was much astonished at the accusation and adjudged the cloak to my opponent. I, however, offered the young man 20, 50, 80, at last a 100, Zekins, in addition to his 200 if he would surrender it to me. What my entreaties could not accomplish, my goal did. He took my good sessions, while I went off in triumph with the mantle, obliged to be satisfied with being taken for a madman by everyone in Florence. Nevertheless, the opinion of the people was a matter of indifference to me, for I knew better than they that I would still gain by the bargain. With impatience I awaited the night. At the same hour as the preceding day, I proceeded to the Ponte Vecchio, the mantle under my arm. With the last stroke of the clock came the figure out of darkness to my side. Beyond a doubt, it was the man of the night before. Hast thou the cloak? I was asked. Yes, sir, I replied, but it cost me a hundred zechins cash. I know it, rejoined he. Look, here are four hundred. He moved with me to the broad railing of the bridge and counted out the gold pieces. Brightly they glimmered in the moonshine. Their luster delighted my heart. Ah, it did not foresee that this was to be its last joy. I put the money in my pocket and then wished to get a good view of the generous stranger, but he had a mask before his face, through which two dark eyes frightfully beamed upon me. I thank you, sir, for your kindness, said I to him. What further desire you of me? I told you before, however, that it must be nothing evil. Unnecessary trouble, answered he, 
throwing the cloak over his shoulders. I needed your assistance as a physician, nevertheless not for a living, but for a dead person. How can that be? exclaimed I in amazement. I came with my sister from a distant land, rejoined he, at the same time motioning me to follow him, and took up my abode with a friend of our family. A sudden disease carried off my sister yesterday, and our relations wished to bury her this morning. According to an old usage of our family, however, all are to repose in the sepulchre of our fathers. Many who have died in foreign lands nevertheless sleep there embalmed. To my relations now I grant the body, but to my father must I bring at least the head of his daughter, that he may see it once again. In this custom of severing the head from near relatives, there was to me indeed something awful. Nevertheless, I ventured to say nothing against it, through fear of offending the unknown. I told him, therefore, that I was well acquainted with the art of embalming the dead, and asked him to lead me to the body. Notwithstanding, I could not keep myself from inquiring why all this must be done so secretly in the night. He answered me that his relations, who considered his purpose inhuman, would prevent him from accomplishing it by day, but only let the head once be cut off, and they could say little more about it. He could, indeed, have brought the head to me, but a natural feeling prevented him from cutting it off himself. These words brought us to a large, splendid house. My companion pointed it out to me as the termination of our nocturnal walk. We passed the principal door and entering a small gate, which the stranger carefully closed after him, ascended, in the dark, a narrow winding staircase. This brought us to a dimly lighted corridor from which we entered an apartment. A lamp, suspended from the ceiling, shed its brilliant rays around. In this chamber stood a bed, on which lay the corpse. The unknown turned away his face, as if wishing to conceal his tears. He beckoned me to the bed, and bidding me set about my business speedily, yet carefully, went out by the door. I seized my knives, which, as a physician, I constantly carried with me, and approached the bed. Only the head of the corpse was visible, but that was so beautiful that the deepest compassion involuntarily came over me. In long braids, the dark hair hung down. The face was pale, the eyes closed. At first, I made an incision in the skin, according to the practice of surgeons when they remove a limb. Then I took my sharpest knife and cut entirely through the throat. But horror, the dead opened her eyes, shut them again, and in a deep sigh seemed now, for the first time, to breathe forth her life. Straightway a stream of hot blood sprang forth from the wound. I was convinced that I had killed the poor girl. For that she was dead, there could be no doubt. From such a wound there was no chance of recovering. I stood some moments in anxious woo, thinking on what had happened. Had the red mantle deceived me, or was his sister perhaps only apparently dead. The latter appeared to me more probable. Yet I dared not tell the brother of the deceased that perhaps a less rash blow would have aroused without having killed her. Therefore I began to sever the head entirely, but once again the dying one groaned, stretched herself out in a convulsion of pain and breathed her last. Then terror overpowered me and I rushed shivering out of the apartment. But outside in the corridor it was dark for the lamp had died out. 
no trace of my companion was perceptible, and I was obliged to move along by the wall, at hazard in the dark, in order to reach the winding stairs. I found them at last, and descended, half falling, half gliding. There was no one below, the door was only latched, and I breathed more freely when I was in the street, out of the uneasy atmosphere of the house. Spurred on by fear, I ran to my dwelling, and buried myself in the pillow of my bed, in order to forget the horrid crime I had committed. But sleep fled my eyelids, and soon, morning admonished me again to collect myself. It seemed probable to me that the man who had led me to this villainous deed, as it now appeared to me, would not denounce me. I immediately resolved to attend to my business in my shop, and to put on as careless an air as possible. But alas, a new misfortune, which I now for the first time observed, augmented my sorrow. My cap and girdle, as also my knives, were missing, and I knew not whether they had been left in the chamber of the dead, or lost during my flight. Alas, the former seemed more probable, and they could discover in me the murderer. I opened my shop at the usual time. A neighbour stepped in, as was his custom, being a communicative man. Ah, what say you to the horrid deed? he cried. That was committed last night. I started as if I knew nothing. How? Know you not that with which the whole city is filled? Know you not that last night, the fairest flower in Florence, Bianca, the daughter of the governor, was murdered? Ah, only yesterday I saw her walking happily through the streets with her bridegroom. For today, she would have had her nuptial festival. Every word of my neighbour was a dagger to my heart, and how often returned my torments. For each of my customers told me the story, one more frightfully than another, yet not one could tell it half so horribly as it had seemed to me. About midday, an officer of justice unexpectedly walked into my shop and asked me to clear it of the bystanders. Signor Zalukos, said he, showing me the articles I had lost, belong these things to you. I reflected whether I should not entirely disown them, but when I saw through the half-open door, my landlord and several acquaintances, who could readily testify against me, I determined not to make the matter worse by a falsehood, and acknowledged the articles exhibited as my own. The officer told me to follow him, and conducted me to a spacious building, which I soon recognised as the prison. Then, a little farther on, he showed me into an apartment. My situation was terrible, as I reflected on it in my solitude. The thought of having committed a murder, even against my wish, returned again and again. Moreover, I could not conceal from myself that the glance of the gold had dazzled my senses. Otherwise, I would not have fallen so blindly into the snare. Two hours after my arrest, I was led from my chamber, and after descending several flights of stairs, entered a spacious saloon. Around a long table hung with black were seated twelve men, mostly grey with age. Along the side of the room, benches were arranged, on which were seated the first people of Florence. In the gallery, which was built quite high, stood the spectators, closely crowded together. As soon as I reached the black table, a man with a gloomy, sorrowful air arose. It was the governor. He told the audience that as a father, he could not judge impartially in this matter, and that he, for this occasion, would surrender his seat 
to the oldest of the senators. The latter was a grey-headed man of at least 90 years. He arose, stooping beneath the weight of age. His temples were covered with thin white hair, but his eyes still burned brightly and his voice was strong and steady. He began by asking me whether I confessed the murder. I entreated his attention and with dauntless, distinct voice related what I had done and all that I knew. I observed that the governor during my recital turned first pale, then red, and when I concluded, became furious. How wretch, he cried out to me, wishest thou thus to lay upon another the crime thy avarice has committed? The senator rebuked him for his interruption, after having of his own free will resigned his right. Moreover, that it was not so clear that I had done the deed through avarice, for according to his own testimony, nothing had been taken from the corpse. Yes, he went still further. He told the governor that he must give an account of his daughter's early life, for in this way only could one conclude whether I had told the truth or not. Immediately, he closed the court for that day, for the purpose, as he said, of consulting the papers of the deceased, which the governor was to give him. I was carried back to my prison, where I passed a sorrowful day, constantly occupied with the ardent hope that they would, in some way, discover the connection between the deceased and the red mantle. Full of hope, I proceeded the next day to the justice hall. Several letters lay upon the table. The old senator asked whether they were of my writing. I looked at them and found that they were by the same hand as both the letters that I had received. This I disclosed to the senator, but he seemed to give but little weight to it, answering that I must have written both, for the name subscribed was unquestionably a Z, the initial of my name. The letters, however, contained menaces against the deceased and warnings against the marriage, which she was on the point of consummating. The governor seemed to have imparted something strange and untrue with respect to my person, for I was treated this day with more suspicion and severity. For my justification, I appealed to the papers, which would be found in my room, but I was informed that search had been made and nothing found. Thus, at the close of the court, vanished all my hope, and when, on the third day, I was led again to the hall, the judgment was read aloud that I was convicted of a premeditated murder and sentenced to death. To such extremity had I come, forsaken by all that was dear to me on earth, far from my native land, innocent and in the bloom of my years, I was to die by the axe. On the evening of this terrible day which had decided my fate, I was seated in my lonely dungeon, my hopes passed, my thoughts seriously turned upon death, when the door of my prison opened and a man entered, who regarded me long in silence. Do I see you again in this situation, Zalukos? he began. By the dim light of my lamp, I had not recognised him, but the sound of his voice awoke within me. Old recollections. It was Valetti, one of the few friends I had made during my studies at Paris. He said that he had casually come to Florence, where his father, a distinguished man, resided. He had heard of my story, and come to see me once more, to inquire with his own lips how I could have been guilty of such an awful crime. I told him the whole history. He seemed lost in wonder and conjured me to tell him, my only friend, all the truth, and not to depart with a lie upon my tongue. 
I swore to him with the most solemn oath that I had spoken the truth and that no other guilt could be attached to me than that, having been blinded by the glance of the gold, I had not seen the improbability of the stranger's story. Then did you not know Bianca? asked he. I assured him that I had never seen her. Valetti thereupon told me that there was a deep mystery in the matter, that the governor in great haste had urged my condemnation, and that a report was current among the people, that I had known Bianca for a long time and had murdered her out of revenge for her intended marriage with another. I informed him that all this was probably true of the red mantle, but that I could not prove his participation in the deed. Valetti embraced me, weeping, and promised me to do all that he could to save my life, if nothing more. I had not much hope. Nevertheless, I knew that my friend was a wise man and well acquainted with the laws, and that he would do all in his power to preserve me. Two long days was I in suspense. At length, Valetti appeared. I bring consolation, though even that is attended with sorrow. You shall live and be free, but with the loss of a hand. Overjoyed, I thanked my friend for my life. He told me that the governor had been inexorable and would not once look into the matter. That at length, however, rather than appear unjust, he had agreed, if a similar case could be found in the annals of Florentine history, that my penalty should be regulated by the punishment that was then inflicted. He and his father had searched day and night in the old books and had at length found a case similar in every respect to mine. The sentence there ran thus. He shall have his left hand cut off, his goods shall be confiscated, and he himself banished forever. Such now was my sentence also, and I was to prepare for the painful hour that awaited me. I will not bring before your eyes the frightful moment in which, at the open marketplace, I laid my hand upon the block, in which my own blood in thick streams flowed over me. Valetti took me to his house until I had recovered, and then generously supplied me with money for my journey, for all that I had so laboriously acquired was confiscated to justice. I went from Florence to Sicily, and thence, by the first ship I could find, to Constantinople. My hopes, which rested on the sum of money I had left with my friend, were not disappointed. I proposed that I should live with him. How astonished was I, when he asked why I occupied not my own house. He told me that a strange man had, in my name, bought a house in the quarter of the Greeks, and told the neighbours that I would soon, myself, return. I immediately proceeded to it, with my friend, and was joyfully received by all my old acquaintances. An aged merchant handed me a letter, which the man who purchased for me had left. I read. Zalukos, two hands stand ready to work unceasingly, that thou mayest not feel the loss of one. That house which thou seest, and all therein are thine, and every year shalt thou receive so much, that thou shalt be among the rich of thy nation. Mayest thou forgive one who is more unhappy than thyself. I could guess who was the writer, and the merchant told me, in answer to my inquiry, that it was a man covered with a red cloak, whom he had taken for a Frenchman. I knew enough to convince me that the unknown was not entirely devoid of generous feeling. In my new house, I found all arranged in the best style. 
a shop, moreover, full of wares, finer than any I had ever had. Ten years have elapsed since then, more in compliance with ancient custom than because it is necessary. Do I continue to travel in foreign lands for purposes of trade? But the land which was so fatal to me, I have never seen since. Every year, I receive a thousand pieces of gold. But although it rejoices me to know that this unfortunate is so noble, still can his money never remove Wu from my soul. For there lives forever the heart-rending image of the murdered Bianca. Thus ended the story of Zalukos, the Grecian merchant. With great interest had the others listened. The stranger, in particular, seemed to be wrapped up in it. More than once, he had drawn a deep sigh, and Muley looked as if he had had tears in his eyes. No one spoke for some time after the recital. And hate you not the unknown, who so basely cost you a noble member of your body, and even put your life in danger, inquired Selim. Perhaps there were hows at first, answered the Greek, in which my heart accused him before God of having brought this misfortune upon me and embittered my life. But I found consolation in the religion of my fathers, which commanded me to love my enemies. Moreover, he probably is more unhappy than myself. You are a noble man, exclaimed Selim, cordially pressing the hand of the Greek. The leader of the escort, however, here interrupted their conversation. He came with a troubled air into the tent and told them that they could not give themselves up to repose, for this was the place in which caravans were usually attacked, and his guards imagined they had seen several horsemen in the distance. The merchants were confounded at this intelligence. Selim, the stranger, however, expressed wonder at their alarm, saying they were so well escorted they need not fear a troop of Arabian robbers. Yes, sir, rejoined to him the leader of the guard. Were he only a common outlaw, we could compose ourselves to rest without anxiety. But for some time back, the frightful Orbason has shown himself again, and it is well to be upon our guard. The stranger inquired who this Orbason was, and Ahmet, the old merchant, answered him. Various rumours are current among the people with respect to this wonderful man. Some hold him to be a supernatural being, because, with only five or six men, he has frequently fallen upon a whole encampment. Others regard him as a bold Frenchman, whom misfortune has driven into this region. Out of all this, however, thus much alone is certain that he is an abandoned robber and highwayman. That can you not prove, answered Lezar, one of the merchants. Robber as he is, he is still a noble man, and such has he shown himself to my brother, as I can relate to you. He has formed his whole band of well-disciplined men, and as long as he marches through the desert, no other band ventures to show itself. Moreover, he robs not as others, but only exacts a tribute from the caravans. Whoever willingly pays this proceeds without further danger, for Orbison is lord of the wilderness. Thus did the travellers converse together in the tent. The guards, however, who were stationed around the resting place, began to become uneasy. A tolerably large band of armed horsemen showed themselves at the distance of half a league. They appeared to be riding straight to the encampment. One of the guard came into the tent to inform them that they would probably be attacked. The merchants consulted among themselves 
as to what they should do, whether to march against them or await the attack. Achmet and the two elder merchants inclined to the latter course. The fiery muley, however, and Zaleukos desired the former and summoned the stranger to their assistance. He, however, quietly drew forth from his girdle a little blue cloth spangled with red stars, bound it upon a lance and commanded one of the slaves to plant it in front of the tent. He would venture his life upon it, he said, that the horsemen, when they saw this signal, would quietly march back again. Muley trusted not the result. Still, the slave put out the lance in front of the tent. Meanwhile, all in the camp had seized their weapons and were looking upon the horsemen in eager expectation. The latter, however, appeared to have espied the signal. They suddenly swerved from their direct course towards the encampment and, in a large circle, moved off to the side. Struck with wonder, the travellers stood some moments, gazing alternately at the horsemen and the stranger. The latter stood in front of the tent quite indifferently, as though nothing had happened, looking upon the plain before him. At last, Muley broke the silence. Who art thou, mighty stranger? he exclaimed, that restrainest with a glance the wild hordes of the desert. You rate my art higher than it deserves, answered Selim Baruch. I observed this signal when I fled from captivity. What it means, I know not. Only this much I know, that whoever travels with this sign is under great protection. The merchants thanked the stranger and called him their preserver. Indeed, the number of the robbers was so great that the caravan could not, probably, for any length of time, have offered an effectual resistance. With lighter hearts, they now gave themselves to sleep, and when the sun began to sink and the evening wind to pass over the sand plain, they struck their tents and marched on. The next day they halted safely, only one day's journey from the entrance of the desert. When the travellers had once more collected in the large tent, Lezar, the merchant, took up the discourse. I told you yesterday that the dreaded Orbison was a noble man. Permit me to prove it to you today by the relation of my brother's adventure. My father was Kadi of Akara. He had three children. I was the eldest, my brother and sister being much younger than myself. When I was 20 years old, a brother of my father took me under his protection. He made me heir to his property, on condition that I should remain with him until his death. He, however, had reached an old age, so that before two years I returned to my native land, having known nothing, before, of the misfortune which had meanwhile fallen upon my family, and how Allah had turned it to advantage. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. I hope you liked my tale. If you did, please follow me on Sci-Fi Tales to listen to more tales every week. You can also share your thoughts and opinions on our social media. I appreciate your feedback and support. Don't miss the next episode of Sci-Fi Tales, the show where we bring you stories of science fiction and fantasy. Good night and see you soon.